Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity title, Part 2, Improving Quality of Care and Shared Decision-Making in Myelofibrosis, is provided by Access Medical Education and Q-Synthesis and supported by an educational grant from Celgene Corporation. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Thank you very much and looking forward to sharing today some of the updates on myelofibrosis. So we're going to uh, be talking on really trying to improve the quality of care and shared decision-making in myelofibrosis. After completing this activity, we hope that you are able to uh, better develop personalized care and treatment plans uh, for patients with myelofibrosis, incorporating disease and patient-specific factors, as well as incorporating strategies to improve shared decision-making amongst uh, patients and, uh, and you and your team. So myelofibrosis, what are some of the key takeaways from what we discussed? Well, first, myelofibrosis is a chronic disease, and it's a chronic myeloid disorder with quite a heterogeneous uh, impact that it has for patients, as well as a very heterogeneous prognosis. So really having an accurate sense of your diagnosis, prognosis, and symptom burden is really key to developing a treatment plan. The evolving understanding of molecular mutations and how they aid us in prognostication and developing our therapeutic plan is very important. Jack inhibition has become an important mainstay of therapy for these patients with both ruxolitinib and fedratinib as approved frontline options. Fedratinib is approved and also available as a second-line therapy for ruxolitinib failures, uh, particularly and also frontline for those with modest thrombocytopenia. So you look here at, to remind you of the frontline data on both of these, ruxolitinib, the COMFORT trials show vast superiority of ruxolitinib to either placebo or best alternative therapy for controlling spleen and symptoms. The Jakarta studies showed a similar efficacy for spleen and symptom control in the frontline setting and, and outstanding efficacy for second-line therapy in those patients in Jakarta 2 had failed ruxolitinib. We now have two additional JAK2 inhibitors, mamalinib and pacritinib, that are in advanced phase three trials, trying to similarly become approved. Now, our NCCN treatment guidelines have been available for a few years. They continue to evolve, and they first stratify people by being in either lower or higher risk. And there's a variety of different prognostic tools I would share for most, the MIPSS 70, is probably the most broadly uh, applicable. Uh, you can now uh, just type it MIPSS 70 in Google. You'll find the website to plug in the, uh, the data to get a, a prognostic score. For lower risk patients, I, a trial or potentially medical therapy, ruxolitinib for symptomatic individuals, hydria meeting cytoreduction. reduction. The majority of patients are higher risk. So if they're transplant candidates, go ahead and proceed toward transplant, likely with a JAK inhibitor first. If they're markedly thrombocytopenic, consider a clinical trial, or individuals with greater than platelets than 50,000, RUX or fedratinib or a trial. Individuals that primarily have anemia, it's still a pretty big unmet need. And like our guidelines for MDS, if they have an inadequate erythropoietin level, 
give them an ESA. If the EPO level is higher, consider a clinical trial, addition of danazole, or an image. And we'll talk about a new therapy such as lospatrocyte, which may be options in the near future as well. But be mindful that there's no other coexisting cause of anemia or any other vitamin iron deficiency, et cetera, that can be corrected. Now, because it's a chronic disease and it's a heterogeneous disease, it's important as we work with our patients to develop our treatment goals. Now, what are the goals for the patient? Well, that's something we really need to discuss with them. Are we trying to decrease the risk of thrombosis or bleeding? Are we trying to improve symptoms? Are we trying to increase activity in the individual is markedly fatigued or having difficulties with splenomegaly? Are we trying to improve anemia if they're transfusion dependent? Are we trying to make them transfusion independent? Are we trying to extend survival? Again, I could think of clinical scenarios where any one of these might be an important priority. And what therapy we pick, how long it takes to achieve that goal, are all parts of that equation. You know, I have a 78-year-old patient I saw last week who needs blood every week to two. And for that patient, one of the biggest impacts for his quality of life would be if we could improve that transfusion-dependent anemia. I have an 83-year-old that just got admitted with acute leukemia from myelofibrosis. The goals for them are going to be different. It may be symptoms, but it may be trying to extend life. So uh, the discussion of goals, both in your own mind, what do you really view as an achievable goal, as well as weaving the patient into that decision-making is key. Now, one key aspect of developing a treatment plan is understanding the burden that the patient is facing as well as their symptoms. Now, our, our group has worked to develop a series of patient-reported outcome forms uh, that now have been broadly uh, utilized and are readily available called the MPN-10, 10 core item of symptoms. And the purpose of these patient-reported outcome forms is to be able to quantify the subjective. So as you're seeing the patient with MF, you do your exam and you see how big the spleen is. You have your blood counts and you see where the blood counts are at. The patient reported outcome form is to try to objectify the subjective. What are their symptoms? How do you see them at baseline? How do they track over time? These 10 items, patients can fill out this form in, the, in your waiting room. They typically can fill it out in just a moment or two, particularly if they filled it out before. They don't need to be filling it out every day. This is in no way onerous. You can scan it into your record. Over time, we are gonna have Epic and others have it be readily available. Ideally, the patients could fill out ahead of time and just be incorporated into the electronic medical record but it's been highly validated to both to be reproducible as well as differences or improvements as being clinically meaningful. Now we evolved to develop these scores by incorporation of fatigue, spleen symptoms, constitutional symptoms, vascular and mood related symptoms. It's now been validated in multiple languages. We have data on thousands of patients uh, and although there's more than one form, they are all relatively interchangeable. 
we see that the symptoms are both prevalent. You'll see on the left, the majority of patients have symptoms. Each of these symptoms, except fevers and weight loss, are present in 50% or more of patients with PV, ET, and MS. Myelofibrosis patients are the most symptomatic, paritis being uh, an outlier of being the most severe and prevalent in patients with PV. Now, the advantage of this approach is that you can visually look at both stability and change, and I think it's helpful both at baseline as well as tracking over time. If you're using a therapy to improve symptoms, is it achieving it? Uh, do we need to adjust the dose? There are times that we will increase the dose of ruxolitinib to uh, further improve uh, improvements in pruritus or in night sweats. Now, as we think about treating these patients, we need to think about the overall goals. As I've mentioned, are we trying to impact thrombosis symptoms? Uh, how do we weave in risk of progression? How do we weave in their, uh, their values, their desires and wishes? The individual that has 10% blasts, who we are concerned are gonna be transforming to AML. The goal there may be progression-free survival. And we may choose to add a hypomethylating agent onto a JAK inhibitor to delay progression to acute leukemia. That's a very different goal than the individual who I mentioned, whose main debility was related to transfusion dependence. So having a good mindset on the goals is an important part. And weaving in the symptom assessment tools can really help you in this process. Now you'll see here kind of the, uh, the prevalence yeah, and I view that symptoms are not all interchangeable, meaning there are symptoms like fatigue that are highly prevalent, and there's others that are less prevalent but are more associated with progression, such as weight loss, such as fevers, etc. Now, as we look at the three diseases, what is surprising to, to many is how many patients with PV and ET can be heavily symptomatic. If you think about it in quartiles, with quartile three and four being the most symptomatic patients, patients with myelofibrosis are by far the most symptomatic. But what I think surprises many individuals is how many patients have quartile three or four uh, symptoms with ET or PV. Clearly not all, clearly less than half. Uh, but those individuals, one, have a more difficult burden of disease, but two, sometimes are individuals that may be in the process of progressing. So if I see people in quartile four with PV or ET, I want to be mindful that they're not moving toward myelofibrosis. If they're in quartile four because of paritis, they may well not be. But if they're in quartile four because they're having night sweats and weight loss, I am concerned they may be progressing. Now, people have asked, well, is it, are the symptoms they have really that different than the general population? And on the left, we see a, a study which was done comparing NPM patients with PV and ET to the general population, and indeed, MF patients as being 
clearly more symptomatic across each symptom. If you compare different populations, on the right we compare both UK and USA patients and you'll see how similar their symptom profile really is. Now, symptom assessment has become a standard part of our clinical trial process, and I would argue should be an important part of how we are caring for patients as well. You'll see all of these phase three studies where, again, symptom assessment has been both standardized and largely using the methodology I described. Now, symptoms do change over the course of the disease. You know, as you track the disease, uh, again, and this has been one of the limitations in this era of telemedicine, I can't examine folks, I can't assess the spleen. Folks that come from a distance, I sometimes am now ordering an ultrasound if they are not uh, able to travel because of the pandemic. But the spleen size, change in the blood counts, symptom changes. Now, individuals sometimes, as Again, they start with a the disease, they have inflammation, they have risk of vascular events that can have symptoms that can include uh, headaches, uh, itching, and other difficulties. Maybe cytoreduction reduction will improve those. Uh, they may start to develop some other difficulties. Uh, maybe they're now iron deficient from phlebotomy, if that thrombosis or medication-related side effects. So over the course of the disease, there can be ups and downs both from medication-related benefits, sometimes medication-related toxicities, sometimes secondary effects, either from prior thrombosis or other physiologic changes. And progression in the disease is associated with symptomatic worsening. Now, the topic of today's discussion is really around treatment planning. And wanted to share with you data from an MPN landmark study, uh, both in the US and overseas, that was done to better try to understand patient's perspective compared with some physician perspective and see some opportunities that were found. So this was on the US-based uh, landmark study. You see several hundred patients with MF, PV, and ET with a distribution of different risks uh, and individuals having comorbidities that were uh, to some degree uh, typical for the, the age uh, of these individuals. Now, as we look at the individual, you see on the left, age at diagnosis. Here again, the MF patients being largely older than those with PV and ET. You'll see in many series that patients with PV or ET have a median age in the 60s. So this study perhaps a little bit more heavily weighted toward the younger individuals. A history of bleeding, and again, well above 50%. Now, of course, patients will tend to include things like epistaxis. These are not necessarily major hemorrhage, you see on the bottom people that had a much more serious bleeding event, but still in about a third. Now we asked them specifically, do the symptoms decrease the quality of life symptoms from the disease? And in myelofibrosis, it was in the vast majority, but it was above 50% in all three diseases. This is consistent with the studies we've done before, where there's a clear stepwise increase from ET to PV to MF in terms of the symptom burden. Now, the symptom burden does not 
necessarily always relate to the risk. So the prognosis in myelofibrosis is not always the same as the disease burden. Uh, so uh, although we, we see, you see here severe symptom quartile, quarter four, quartile one, uh, again, uh, it can occur uh, in terms of high symptom burden, whether an individual has low risk or high risk. And that's due to the complex uh, nature of the disease and how it is affecting individuals. Now, with patients with PV, we similarly see, again, significant symptom burden uh, across, the, uh, across the groups. You'll see uh, uh, many uh, did have a significant uh, symptom burden, and when they did, there was a significant association with a reduced quality of life. You saw that there was a real correlation with having to cancel planned activities if symptoms were worse as well as having an impact on employment in terms of having to call in sick. Now, fatigue is one of the most uh, universal and difficult symptoms people will complain about. And again, with a clear stepwise increase from ET to PV to MF. Uh, what you will see is that the symptoms are a little different. If you see in the MF group, you have night sweats, abdominal discomfort, weight loss, early satiety. Versus patients with ET, it's much more related with high counts, headaches, dizziness, numbness, hypertension. So again, a very different impact for the patient and the impact on decision-making in terms of treatments may be different. Again, you see how these are distributed in terms of uh, the most prevalent symptoms. And again, seeing really a different spectrum. MF, abdominal discomfort from the spleen, night sweats, insomnia, the ET patients being quite different, the PV being somewhat in the middle. You'll see here again laid out a different way. Again, a theme, ET to PV to MF, as well as the other factor that's not easily pulled out in these data, but the length of time an individual has had the disease. The longer an individual has the disease, the more the character of the symptoms change. Now, uh, as we look at, at the most severe symptoms, again, you see difficulties with fatigue and inactivity, uh, issues with sexual desire. And again, frequently, that is a surrogate. You know, I view that the issues of intimacy, one are, they're important to our patients, although they won't bring them up if they're not asked. Uh, but two, they typically are a reflection of everything else. You know, if you're having night sweats, if you're having pruritus, uh, if you're having abdominal discomfort, it clearly, you know, issues of sexuality are, are low on your list of priorities. Uh, on the flip side, I find that once that has returned to whatever is normal for that individual, uh, that is a good sign that their quality of life is better and that they really are feeling better. Now, we do see in terms of, of physician priorities, you see here again uh, how uh, physicians prioritize the difficulties for these patients. 
Now, if we look at these symptoms that patients most want to resolve, fatigue at the top of the list in all three groups. And they do try to improve these through both exercise and uh, not an insignificant number of taking non-prescription supplements. Not that I truly know of a supplement that generally has an impact for these symptoms. Uh, there clearly is an impact on, in, on sleeping habits, can be an impact on appearance, difficulties focusing, change in appetite. There clearly can be impact on mood. Uh, and we have had several different studies, not represented on this slide, where again, there's higher rates of depression and anxiety. And again, ET to PV to MF, pretty consistent. Impact on family or social life. And again, I had already mentioned the issues with intimacy. Now this clearly can impact also employment. People might reduce hours at work, they might voluntarily leave their job through medical disability or have retired early. And again, by far the most prevalent in MF and realizing of course that there are individuals who have retired by the time they're diagnosed with MF. So the impact may be more on elective activities for them. Again, you see here impact on canceling planned activities, whether they are fun or necessary. Uh, time spent in bed, time staying home from work. Uh, so averaging six days a, a month, spending uh, a day uh, a day in bed, and three days a month in terms of staying home at work. Now, another big part we saw with the landmark study was a bit of a disconnect regarding the top therapy goal. Patients it, with MF and PV are most concerned with progression and ET with preventing vascular events. Physicians, we have had it drilled into us, preventing vascular events is the primary goal in PV and ET. And interestingly, in MF, symptom improvement. All of these have merit, but it is important realizing how much patients value progression-free survival in, in PV and MF, even though it's not something we have largely had as a focus. Now in parallel, there was a study subsequently done with really the same methodology in, for in Canada, Europe, and uh, Australia and Japan. So an international landmark survey with again, similar numbers of patients, similar type distribution of prognostic scores. And the experience was very similar. It's very telling uh, to, again, show us that independent of culture and geography, similar sorts of symptoms, a similar sort of prevalence and ranking of symptoms. Uh, again, the symptoms that were most difficult uh, were very similar, with perhaps a little bit higher rate of complaints of bone pain for these individuals. Impact on work even though, again, issues of what medical disability even looks like in different countries is going to be quite a bit different, it still was very much impactful. Now, opportunities in terms of communication existed, where, again, there were felt not to be necessarily uh, an open dialogue regarding symptoms or other such challenges between physicians and patients. And realizing again, there's both cultural and workflow uh, issues involved with this. 
As related to differences in treatment goals, the international patients had similar concerns as did the uh, US-based patients regarding issues of prognosis. And there was a further expansion of the international landmark study to some additional countries. And again, found very similar sorts of outcomes. Again, showing that these issues regarding prevalent symptom burden, uh, goal setting, uh, difficulties and concerns with the disease were not limited to one country or not excluded in certain cultures. And again, difference between alignment regarding treatment goals between physicians and patients. And opportunities as it related to levels of satisfaction regarding patient and physician communication in this diverse group of countries outside of the US. Finally, there's not a patient who does not ask about opportunities as it relates to nutrition. And there's increasing data to show one, patients are very concerned about opportunities as it relates to nutrition, but two, that there may be potential in uh, dietary interventions that might be impactful. Uh, there are uh, colleagues that have been looking at whether it's the ketogenic diet or others uh, to have an impact for these patients. Clearly, particularly advanced myelofibrosis patients with significant splenomegaly, having a visit with a nutritionist regarding both volume composition of meals and others has important uh, impact. This nutrient study is done by Dr. Angela Fleischman at University of California, Irvine. It's still being evaluated, but again, looking at the impact of a, uh, of a carb-restricted diet uh, and impact for patients that, uh, again, uh, is preliminary, but uh, the data are intriguing. Part of our goal with this series is both having a more comprehensive discussion around treatment planning, but the concept of really shared decision-making. Where again, we want an adequately informed patient where together you make a decision regarding the treatments. And I think in a situation where we don't clearly have, where we have more than one option, more than one approach, and there are a range of goals and strategies, this is very, very important. You know, we rarely have a lot of shared decision-making regarding, you know, taking an antibiotic therapy for strep throat. But in the long-term management of a chronic disease, this is a very important uh, aspect, whether it is a malignant disease uh, or a benign disease. And again, there's several key fundamentals in shared decision-making uh, in health, in healthcare organizations, promotion of leadership and culture, enhancing patient education engagement, providing healthcare team knowledge and training, taking concrete action for implementation, track, monitor, and report, establish accountability for organizations, clinicians, and patients. It really should become a standard. And access, they have these six E's that they have as an acronym for you. One, ensure that you see and treat the patient as an individual, not a disease. You enable a long-term personal connection with your patient. You elicit 
their preferences or their caregiver values and goals for therapy. I'm very mindful of this. I discuss the issue of transplant. You know, I'll have some 65-year-olds who are aggressive in terms of their care and are appropriate transplant candidates and will move in that direction, and others who, even when they fully understand all that is at stake, clearly choose not to have a transplant. So again, uh, their input is crucial, but their input to be valuable needs to be informed. Uh, the patient-centric experience improves satisfaction with care. Establish a co-created treatment plan that aligns with medical evidence with patient preferences to foster adherence and optimize outcomes. And finally, evaluate the risks and benefits and costs of treatment so they are aligned with patient expectations. Access Medical Education would like to thank our faculty for that excellent presentation and for their dedication to quality continuing professional development. And we thank each of you for your participation. Good day. This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education and Q Synthesis. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.